Welcome to the Integral Stage, TIS, the author series. Today we're in conversation about complexity, integral theory, and education reform with a fellow I invariably find to be thoughtful, well-intentioned, civically-minded, developmentally savvy, and philosophically nuanced. Hi, Brad. Hey, Layman. Good to see you. What is the name of your book and where can people find it? Yeah, the name of the book is Understanding Educational Complexity, Integrating Practices and Perspectives for 21st Century Leadership. And it's being published by Brill. And actually, the official publishing date was actually Thanksgiving Day. So I think it's available right now from publishers. And it, it should be on Amazon, hopefully in December. Terrific. Well, let's, let's jump right in. What's wrong with education reform the way we currently think about it? Yeah, well, education reform... Um, typically refers to some, you know, change in policy with the pretty explicit goal of increasing standardized test scores. So I'd say that right there, the goal is, is kind of off. And, and part of the point of my book is to really help people understand um, all the factors that we need to consider to really understand what's happening in schools. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in schools and I based the book on, on case studies. So there's sort of rich descriptions of what's actually happening. But then my reflection on that is realizing you can't actually understand what's happening in schools if you don't understand policy and ed reform and these bigger influences that are, in, that are influencing these, these actors and these principals and these teachers. So one thing that I try to make explicit in, in the book is how what could be called the global education reform movement is, is becoming this very almost monolithic force that's influencing schools throughout the country and really throughout the world. And it's rooted in a sort of linear, sort of what we could think of as linear modernist approach to, okay, we want to increase learning. We measure that by standardized test scores. Therefore, we want to increase standardized test scores. Therefore, what are the levers that we pull to sort of meet that goal? And the whole educational system ends up being oriented toward manipulating those outcomes and they do it through standardization. They do it through basically creating a competitive environment where schools feeling, are feeling like they're in competition with each other. So education reform is creating this competitive, really standardized, um, really sort of back to basics in many ways environment, which is actually antithetical to the educational process if we actually looked at what would really be involved in creating an ideal learning environment for a child it certainly wouldn't be one where competition and standardization are central features. So we're stuck in this really unfortunate sort of tragic situation where education reform has kind of become like an iatrogenic disease. It's sort of like a problem where the attempt to solve the problem is actually worse than the original problem and just makes things worse. So that's part of what all I'm trying to unpack. I was with you right up until you started to sound insane. Don't we need standardization? And if we don't, what's the alternative in terms of establishing consistency and reliability in educational institutions? Yeah, fair question. Yeah, I'd say standardization is probably the biggest problem in, in education. And I think we have to take it from the scale of you know, education, public education, the global education reform movement. And what we really are losing sight of is the more micro scale of actual relationships between teachers and students and administrators. And it's really important. And that's, that's what often is lost in sort of the education reform policy oriented 
approach is losing sight of what it actually feels like to be in a classroom. So when you look at the actual environment of a community of young people and old people together trying to learn, as any parent knows, children are really unique, you know? So ideally, we're, we have to have an educational environment that really honors the sacred individuality of children and really tries to individualize the process as much as possible in the context of a meaningful community where people are held accountable for their behavior and they're learning how to be responsible citizens, but having a sense of sovereignty, autonomy, meaningful choice, and really being seen and understood as an individual is actually perhaps the most important, the most essential aspect of a healthy learning environment. And that's what gets lost when we focus on standardization and when we focus on quantified outcomes and when we define educational value in terms of quantified standardized outcomes, the experiential uh, reality of that for children and for teachers is to sort of lose that sense of the sacred, lose that sense of I'm being seen and understood as an individual. And then the whole relational quality that would enable the real, the self-actualization of each child is, is really, is really diminished. And it's something that um, it's just so important. It can't be lost sight of when we're talking about sort of big picture education, education reform, education policy. So you think um, adequate social dynamics can largely take the place of standardized quantified metrics for how someone's doing in their educational process. Um, what does it take from a teacher in order to be able to fill that role, in order to be able to um, understand where someone's at and what they need and to be able to communicate that to other people who might need to know where that person's at? Yeah, no, that's a good question too, because it gets to the point of how do you scale to like, how do we actually, who teaches the teachers, right? And that, that is a crucial point. And I think that there's no simple answer to that, but having the resources available to actually create and establish and foster and nurture educational communities is at least how we should be thinking about it. So for instance, as a school leader, for me, having the freedom and the resources to really also see my teachers as sacred individuals and work with them individually and see what their growing trajectory is, is also crucial to the process. So, and th there are sort of fractal principles that we can apply at every level. So the relationship between the teacher and the student is one where the teacher is holding the space. It's not a flat egalitarian relationship, right? There's an elder and there are young people. And yet the young people need to feel autonomy. They need to have meaningful choice. They need to be able to follow their interests, right? And that's part of the environment that the teacher is trying to shape. And there's a very similar principle that is important for school leaders to be able to hold. School leaders have to be able to see teachers as individuals thinking about their learning journey. What do they need? to build their capacity. Maybe there's different professional development for different people. Again, all teachers are in a different place too. So you don't lose sight of that essential sacred individuality. And then at the next level up, it's also similar. Administrators need that kind of freedom too, right? So the problem is we have sort of district level or uh, beyond school influences that are really restricting the behavior and thinking of school leaders. And then that trickles down to restrict the behavior and actions of teachers, which restricts the behavior and thinking of children. So we really have to find right relationship between um, individuality and community, right? We have to find right relationship between autonomy and sort of solidarity or autonomy and communion. We have to find right relationship at every level 
of the educational system from the classroom to the school, to the district or network of schools to the state and beyond. Um, but, but, all, but, but, but the principles are actually fairly simple and it really has to do with, you know, the only way I can answer that question as a school leader is in the context of a particular school, right? So if I have, if I have money and I have space and I have time to create a school environment, you know, how can I sort of cohere a community of people together that will foster uh, enlivening and self-actualizing education for young people? It's not easy to necessarily go to scale with that, but that at least is the goal. And then the answer is found in trying to actually do that. The problem is we're not, we're not even trying to do that. We're doing something very, very different, which is actually antithetical to even those ideals. It's a complex task, but we could figure it out if we actually started trying to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like, and, you know, and the thought seems to be sometimes from that more modernist sort of linear approach thinking is like, well, because it's complex and because there's no simple answer and because I can't create some sort of clearly stratified uh, hierarchical system to sort of implement this educational policy. Therefore, that's not even a realistic goal. So let's just focus on raising standardized test scores, right? And it's like, that's why I feel like at the idea level, at the ideal level, at the level of vision, like we need to get clearer and clearer about some of these basic essential principles of education. And then at least if we can continue to refine and clarify that, that's what the project of education is. It is trying as people who are taking up the project of education to find ways within your context to actualize those ideals. From the point of view of developmental theory, schools are very interesting because they're one of the few areas in society where we have something like a developmental stage model. We've got our preschool, our elementary, our high school, our post-secondary. Now, it's not really a perfect match to the actual uh, phases of psychological maturation that individuals go through, but there is a resemblance there. Now, in your book, you touch on integral theory as an example of developmental models. What do you think is the applicability of developmental models to education? Should teachers and should schools have a sense of a scaffolding of the phases through which they anticipate children going through cognitively, emotionally, et cetera? Yeah, I do think so. I do think so. And it gets, as you know, it gets tricky because there are many different developmental models. They don't match up perfectly. I mean, you can get kind of lost in the weeds. Um, and also a fundamental truth, which is implied by developmental models themselves, is that you're going to understand and be able to understand and interpret developmental models differently depending on what your perspective is and perhaps how complex your perspective taking is. So there's a way in which trying to talk about and share and learn from developmental models can become problematic if they're being understood and interpreted um, in a non-nuanced sort of non-developmentally uh, uh, appropriate or mature way. So I would say um, it, I, it's not something I would lead with, like as a school leader, as someone working in a school, what's relevant and what's meaningful is the meaningful distinctions within the range that you're working, right? So if you're working at a school with young children, say elementary age children, it is absolutely essential that part of the conversation and part of the learning and part of the professional development is understanding the development of children 
and what creates healthy growth, right? So there's a lot that we know from the learning sciences. There's a lot that we know from attachment theory. There's a lot that we know from developmental psychology to help us create learning environments for children just to foster their self-actualization, right? And the problem is that's actually not those conversations and that research has not been what primarily has influenced the standardization of curriculum and standardized testing, right? There's completely different motivations for sort of having the emphasis that we have. If we could just start there by actually having teachers and school leaders thinking and reading together about child development and then trying to make sure that their program aligns with that learning, again, it's sort of this obvious thing that that should be the charge of education. But the problem is, you know, because of politics, economics, and social pressure, um, that's actually not the central conversation at a lot of schools. So I would say, yes, understanding child development is crucial. Even if you take it up the next level, thinking about high school age, middle school, high school, yes, understanding adolescent development is crucial. Understanding, and we're not just talking cognitively here either. Another crucial thing to understand is understanding overall holistic human development, understanding social emotional development, understanding, you know, what adolescents and teenagers and young adults need to feel grounded in community and to feel like they have a purpose in life and to not be just channeling this sort of postmodern cynicism and alienation and just like mental health problems that a lot of our teenagers are developing. So, which is another thing that's lost when we take a more standardized quantitative approach is we just kind of bracket and push aside the overall holistic social emotional health. So yes, thinking about the overall development of children, yeah, birth through birth through college is, is absolutely central and essential. That, but that's different than saying, you know, should we be learning or teaching integral theory, for instance, or any particular model? I would say learning something like integral theory, being exposed to that sort of meta theory would be a meaningful thing to do probably in high school. And, and beyond, but it's, it's a slightly different question. When I talk to people about educational change or possibilities of educational change, there seem to be two main areas. One is what should we add into the system? And the other one is what should we keep out of the system? So there, you know, some people are like, maybe there needs to be meditation or some analog to meditation. Maybe there needs to be aesthetic and hedonic training of some kind. But then other people are very focused on uh, preventing the influx of certain political atmospheres into the school and things like that. So let's focus on that one first, because you mentioned, you know, things happening outside of the educational system impinging on it. What do you see as the main things that sort of invade the educational system that aren't really about education and which if we had a robust educational immune system, we could keep them out and it would already be better. Yeah. Well, the thing that we have to account for somehow is media and technology is the first thing that comes to mind. And it, the world is so different now really than it was even uh, when you and I were coming up through, through whatever school systems we came up in. It's, it's just very different. I mean, I, I can't imagine being in high school with smartphones, you know, and with, and with Facebook and Instagram and all and, and TikTok or whatever children are spending their attention on nowadays. Um, so I think that that is a big one is as actually, as a school community, what is our responsibility for creating a healthy, sane little world? How do we create an island of sanity in a world of chaos and cacophony? Um, is a meaningful question for any school community to ask. And I think being in conversation with 
parents. And that's another thing too, is actually acknowledging that a school community is a community of families, right? And it's not just this, again, getting out of the sort of modern industrial age notion of education as though it's this, it's this um, almost this like learning factory or it's this separate thing where children go and they learn stuff while the parents like work and make money and the children are learning stuff so that they can then get a job and make money. Like that sort of background, you know, um, logic of the whole system kind of has to mature as well, where we really are updating our operating system in terms of thinking about how, what is the purpose? What are the relationships? How are families engaged? Because as a school too, you can't, like there's no point in having say really harsh rules about using your cell phone or using social media when you're in school. And then, you know, the whole rest of their life, they're just hooked to their screen basically and not getting enough sleep and not eating well and not having enough time outside and not having healthy relationships with their parents. So I really, I feel like bringing families into the conversation and really trying as much as possible to just level up the thoughtfulness of communities. Like we're raising our children together. And when we are in whatever, whether we're homeschooling or in a private school or a public school, you are going to be in a relationship with other people who are helping you raise your child. Um, and getting that, get just having the focus be on having meaningful conversations with parents and with teachers to help, again, just level up and mature and develop the complexity of those conversations, I think, is a way to sort of hold our children in a more mature and uplifted environment where we're actually making decisions and discernments about what's healthy and appropriate in regard to cell phone use, technology use, social media use, and then thinking about and interpreting with them, helping children interpret the messages that they're getting. I mean, again, I just, the psychological impact of growing up as an adolescent teenager, let's say, in the era of the Trump presidency. I mean, it's, it's something to really pause and consider. I think, you know, as adults, who are taking in a lot of information and we already have pretty sophisticated or mature frameworks for interpreting our social reality and the chaos of living in a post-truth world with a national leader who just lies perpetually. Like it's hard enough for us to just hold that and process that and let that be the case and still feel okay about ourselves and the world that we're living in. But my 13, 14 year old self, I don't know how I would have processed all of that and still felt at the end of the day, like I was okay and that the world was okay and that things made sense somehow, right? Like we have to help our children make sense. And my sense is that there's not enough explicit conversation with young people and we don't have enough mature elders who are actually scaffolding that conversation to help young people manage the influx of confusing chaos and conflicting messages that they're getting exposed to. So you know, um, like there's a good book um, called Hold On to Your Kids, right? Which is really about like, as a parent, it's your responsibility to really keep your kids close and actually be scaffolding through this process. And, you know, just sending them off to school and feeling like, oh, as long as they get good grades and go to college and get a job, they're going to be okay. At this point in time, that's not an adequate approach. It, it, it's not an adequate approach from a parent or a school. We really have to be thinking more holistically and we have to acknowledge the degree of pathology that is running rampant in our, in our media and, and our culture.
I mean, as a parent, it just, it hits me so hard. I'm just like, how do I not overprotect my child? And yet how do I protect my child and keep, keep her world sane to foster her growth until she's at a point where she can actually handle the full influx of, of the chaos we're going through. So the parent has to be a filter and the parent has to be engaged rather than sort of passively assuming the school's going to do it all. But there's this other side you're saying about overprotection. Uh, how much of all of this is about uh, modulating anxiety? You know, because it's it's all good to say, you know, we want these kids to self-actualize. But then you think, are they really going to be able to get a job or are they really going to naturally develop math skills if I don't kind of force them and buckle down on that? And what if I don't make sure they repeat the right social virtue messages? Won't they just succumb to the chaos of the world that I see out the window every day? Like, yeah. so uh, there's this powerful urge in people to want to help foster their children's education. But a lot of the time, I assume it shows up as anxiety and that anxiety sort of bombards the educational system from outside. Now, how do you handle the anxiety of parents? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one, too. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, it, it, it depends what the context is. So like literally in relationship with a parent, just as in relationship with a child, like listening and honoring and acknowledging the truth and the validity of that feeling as first and foremost, like there is a lot of legitimate things to be really anxious about today. And so that's like, there's basic principles of healthy relationship that foster human development. Right. So like being in tune with how to embody those basic principles, whether you're in relationship with a toddler, you know, or an older child or an adolescent or a parent or a teacher or a fellow citizen. Right. Again, there, there's this there's this fractal quality to that. every scale. There's really actually basic, simple principles of being in attunement with people, listening, validating, meeting them where they're at, hearing where they're coming from. And then looking for what's that next step, right? So that's scaffolding in like in, in, in educational, like pedagogical talk for a child, you know, you're getting a sense of where they are and then you want to take them to that next step for them. What's the next step in their learning? And that's going to be the most effective learning because it's individualized and it's really in tune with where they're at and it's really at the right pace for them. It's the same for every relationship, actually. If I'm in conversation with a coworker, or, or even a friend or family member. It's like, okay, I'm hearing where you're coming from. And then what's the next step for this conversation? So I think getting a sense of where parents are coming from is important, but then still taking that educational pedagogical position, ideally, where you're still trying to further that conversation and get them to think through what are the logical conclusions of where their feelings are taking them and where they need to go. And what do they need to do that would be best for their child? Oh, well, if you go down this path, and that's actually overprotecting. And then they're just going to react to that. And they're going to resist it. And then they're going to actually cause conflict in your relationship. That might not be the way to go. If you're totally just letting them do whatever they want to do to avoid conflict, then they're not getting the sort of stewardship that they need. So again, some, some, it's, a, it's typically going to be some sort of middle path between extremes and helping the people get a sense for their context. What do those two possible extremes look like? And then for them, what would be the middle path that would fit their situation? I'm personally very interested in the notion of basic developmental skills. 
Uh, and I'm curious about how that relates to notions of complexity in the book. You talk a little bit about how complexity and disruptions even can help foster a more dynamic learning environment. And so I'm curious about which skills are the skills that people need in order to be able to handle complexity and disruptions, and which skills are the ones that sort of spontaneously emerge in them by trying to handle complexity and disruptions? Hmm. That's a good question, Lehman. I don't know if I have a clear answer to that one. I'd say in reference to the literature on complex systems, I mean, one of the points there is it is it is living in that tension of you, you do have to challenge people and you have to cause disequilibrium for growth to happen. So sometimes people really do need to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And there's this tension in looking at ed reform in regard to maintaining the status quo. And there's this, I think at the individual level and at the collective level of a school, there's this tendency to just want to keep things as they are and to maintain the status quo. And part of effective leadership is sometimes creating disequilibrium and creating a, a, a chance for change. But then part of the lesson of complex systems is you can't always predict how that's going to go, right? Like you actually, one of the problems is coming in with a linear idea of the policy you're going to implement and then what needs to happen. But what actually happens is a lot of different people reacting to what you're doing in a lot of different ways. And if you don't have at least some sort of, so there's different capacities that are necessary at different positions and positionalities within that system too, right? So if you are a teacher and someone's causing disequilibrium, you might go through a period of challenge and stress and anxiety that could potentially be good for your growth, but it's much more likely to be good for your growth and for that to be an emergent skill or capacity that comes out of that stress and tension and challenge if it's being held by a school leader who's actually already holding a more complex perspective and has some anticipation for your reactivity, right? Whereas if, you, if it's a more like linear thinking school leader who like just wants you to get with the program and isn't really going to be listening to you or understanding where you're coming from or why you're reacting the way you're reacting, I feel like, again, that's not going to be a healthy educational relationship. And then that skill or capacity is going to be less likely to actually grow out of that disequilibrium. So that's just another way of saying all the importance of the maturity and the complexity of the person who's in the teacher position, whether it's a parent and a child, a teacher and a child, or a school leader and a teacher. Part of the, part of the point of the book and part of the things that's unpacked in the book is really looking at not just what's happening in the schools and not just the difference between interpreting what's happening in schools from a sort of, okay, this is the policy like linear approach versus like understanding the school as a complex systems and understanding why things unfold the way they do, but also looking at the perspective differences of the leaders and looking at how the way they make sense of the world, the way they make meaning, the way they approached their sort of impetus for change, their thinking really mattered. And it really matters in terms of how other people experience them. And it really matters in terms of thinking about whether or not they were, they were successful. So we, we, we are fundamentally, and we're stuck in every realm of life. We're stuck with this, with this question again, of who's teaching the teachers? How do you actually have mature, complex people who are sort of holding the reins and steering these processes? And if we don't have enough people with that capacity, we are in trouble. You know, we, we are facing a capacity and capabilities crisis. That I'd say, you know, that that's one aspect of the meta crisis that we're in 
is a capacity and capabilities crisis. And that's part of the educational answer is that we, it is focused on up-leveling capacity and capability. So at least to be recognizing that and trying to level up again, it's, it's, it's part of the, part of the intention. So we've got these school leaders. We hope that they are mature and leveled up enough that they can hold space for and tweak the teachers as the teachers continue to grow and level up and adapt to disequilibrium so that the teachers can hold that space for the students. Now, if that at all worked successfully, those students would grow up in a maturational way and become available to be the mature, wise leaders of the future. But what do we do with the leaders we have now who haven't gone through an effective developmental maturational education? How do we help them become the kind of leaders that we need them to be? Is it possible to do it, you know, as an, starting as an adult, so to speak? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, it's possible. It's not easy. And I'd say what a lot of the developmental literature does bear out is that it's, it's not easy or simple to, to, to actually level up as an adult. But again, I just, I don't know. I feel like if we have a choice between acknowledging these problems and actually trying to describe them and clarify them, and then think about next steps in any particular context, that is the way, like that is the only way that I see. Whereas just not acknowledging them, not seeing them and doing a bunch of other stuff that's really counterproductive, which is what's happening is part of the problem, right? So just owning that as a legitimate real problem, I'd say is, 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 is the first step, sort of like when you're, when you're stuck in an unhealthy pattern or an addiction of some kind, like acknowledging the problem and really owning up to it and facing it is key. So I'd say like, we, we need to face that problem, but then that allows us to, okay, whoever's working on this, whoever's interested in education, whoever's actually has positions of power, whether it be at the district level or at the political level and policymaking level, the more that those actual people who have more power, it's also a smaller number of people being able to identify these kinds of problems and being able to put the whole situation in this developmental context, I think is maybe the first step. Like it's a really important thing. So then we can start to have those conversations and we can start to find answers. We can start to think about, okay, then if this is the context and if this is the sort of trajectory and if these are the capacities that we actually need our leaders to have, then what would be the professional development possible for them? What programs, what teachers and teachings, what readings are available for the school leaders in my district to go to, right? And then we can start thinking about actual concrete. Okay, maybe they should read this. Maybe we should have, maybe we should, instead of focusing on sort of, uh, one thing that's happening in education is actually taking a lot of sort of management 101 thinking from the business world and trying to input it into schools. So actually teaching school leaders to be like CEOs is actually a big movement in education reform right now. So I'd say, again, like that's what's not to do. Like a lot of what's happening is just making the problem worse. We're actually trying to force people who are educators who have become school leaders to act more like business CEOs because the thinking is that that will help get better outcomes in schools, just like it might help better like increase profits in business, right? And that's just the exactly wrong model. So if we could shift from that to actually thinking more about the problem that you raised, thinking more about hmm, if we actually don't, if what we need is not CEOs who are trying to maximize profit, because that's not what we need. If what we need is actually 
holistic leaders who are attuned to the relationships of their staff in a way that's going to foster the development of all of those individuals. It's just a different conversation. It's going to lead you to different books. It's going to lead you to different workshops. It's going to lead you to different um, people who can help you answer the question, right? And there are people and books and programs out there that would be much better than the kind of training that school leaders are currently getting. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point about the possibility of outsourcing a lot of the answers if we can ask the right questions and clarify the problem. Because, you know, if we say to ourselves, this school needs to be able to provide education in calculus, the school itself doesn't have to invent calculus, right? Once it's asked that question, it can go and find someone who understands calculus and has written a useful textbook about it or something like that. So it's already the habit of educational systems to get their answers outside of themselves once they've asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. And, and clarifying the question is the key. And just even that changes the way we're thinking about things. So reframing, reframing problems until we find the frame that is actually most conducive to finding the answer that's going to actually foster human development. Like that's what the educational process should, should be all about. You talked about there already being a number of good books and approaches and thinkers on this subject. So who do you like? What books uh, have you really drawn a lot from? What sort of courses maybe have informed your thinking on the subject? And who are your, I don't know, intellectual heroes in the field of education? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, so there's a couple different parts to that. And so, and the different parts I try to bring into the book. So part of the thing I'm trying to show in the book is that Again, like understanding schools as complex systems is one piece. Understanding individual development is another piece. And then understanding the influence of like economics and politics is another piece. So I think for education, we need um, learning in those different areas, right? So in terms of development, I mean, the basics do take you pretty far in terms of like actually, you know, not just being exposed to Piaget and Vygotsky and Erickson, like when you're in Psych 101, but actually going back, like circling back to those texts and actually um, looking at more recent updates and journal articles from like Neo Piagetans and like, you know, just looking at actual child development in that way. I'd say another, so like, you know, covering the basics in terms of, in, in terms of Piagetan and like constructivist learning. Um, I'd say looking into attachment theory so, you know, there's a few different um, sort of like textbooks or books out there, but doing some reading in regard to attachment is important. I would say that um, in, in the sort of political social sphere, looking at somebody like Michael Apple or Diane Ravitch's more recent books, um, there's, you know, there, 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 there's people who are doing good work in terms of analyzing the sort of structural problems um, and when we look at leadership, looking at people like my mentor, Andy Hargreaves, looking at Michael Fullen, like there's a lot of good stuff out there about leadership as well. So bringing a couple of these, a few of these different things together. And I'll say like in, in my book, there's, there's tons of references. It, it's sort of an academic text in terms of like I'm citing and quoting a lot of people and trying to pull a lot of different threads into the conversation. Um, but also the, there's just an ongoing um, not a lot of names are coming to mind just because there's, there's just so much. It's, there's just so much, you know, it, it, it's hard to even, I, I feel like I'd be excluding people who I should be <laughs> including, but I'd say basic 
cognitive development, attachment theory, understanding the political economics of ed reform. Like I mentioned, Michael Apple, Diane Ravitch and others are crucial there. And then maybe, maybe not necessarily doing reading about complex systems at the school level, but having a sense of one thing I'd add in is for the, for the adults in the room, for the teachers and educators, I do think that being exposed to um, the broadest context of change that's happening in the world right now is important. So like I start the book in my preface with just setting up the context as like we are in these meta crises right now and we are in a very rapidly changing world. So also reading, reading about technology, like reading The Shallows, right? Like by Carr or reading, reading about research on the detrimental effects of screens and smartphones and social media on teens. Like you got to bring that in too, right? And you have to bring in maybe even some bigger picture thinking like integral theory or metamodernism and Hansi Freinacht and people like that, maybe, maybe not as required for teachers, but as potential possible optional conversations. Cause I feel like the more that we can get teachers to have that sort of big picture thinking about the world they're living in, the better. And I think that that is actually another part of the capacity crisis that we're facing is that in general, people tend to keep their view sort of too small. It's just like, you know, they're worried about their life and their family and their job and it's kind of living day to day. And people, I think all adults need opportunities to kind of open up the scope, open up the context, be exposed to bigger ideas, even if it's not just about child development or education, even if it's about just what's going on in the world. Part of what I envision is having a learning community that has a shared understanding of the broader context they're working in so that their work is meaningful and purposeful, right? It's not just a job. It's not just about trying to necessarily teach content to your children. It really is about helping children to go through uh, the process of being ready to live in this unfolding 21st century world, which is just gonna get more and more complex. The notion of adaptation to a broader context is interesting. I think it's one of the main ways of defining what education could mean is adaptation to some kind of world space. Now, I'm often hesitant to lean into that too much because one of the ways I like to define wisdom and developmental education is as a kind of deviation from mere adaption to your ecological niche. But nonetheless, adaptation is a huge piece. And it's possible that the limitations of modern education were appropriate in terms of requiring people to adapt to modern civilization, which was sort of notably linear and unnatural relative to what had come before. But now we're trying to adapt to either a postmodern or a metamodern situation and this general environment of uncertainty and accumulating crises that they call the meta crisis. Um, it's very hard to know what the appropriate adaptation skills and thriving mechanisms for such an uncertain environment are going to be. So how do we, um, what do we cultivate in people in order to face a world that is potentially more unstable and transformative and unknown than the mm. world we were previously adapting them to? Yeah. Yeah. So one way I've been thinking about that is actually a potentially meaningful way of unpacking the relevance and importance of integral theory and this idea of there are these stages that are unfolding, but what I feel like is really called for now isn't integration. Like we're, 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 we're going through a sort of great unraveling 
right now. And we're experiencing a lot of fragmentation and a lot of unhealthy diversity in the sense of conflict of different perspectives. So I feel like what's really called for right now in terms of adaptation is a great integration and a sort of bringing things together and a sort of a, a, a collective healing that actually doesn't necessarily have to know in advance what the future structure is going to be that we need to grow to. It's actually more a process of growing down and actually healing and actually integrating those parts of ourselves and communities and our species that have already emerged, but are maybe not in equilibrium and balance with each other, right? So concretely speaking, I'm thinking of thinking of our need and tendency to be in relationship with a relatively small community, right? So having a learning community be like a tribe, be like a reconnection with that indigenous, just integrated being in the world with other people and having some sort of integral indigeneity or cosmopolitan sort of tribalism where we are, where we are connected to a group of people meaningfully over a period of time. And I feel like that's something that a lot of us are missing right now. There's a lot of alienation and isolation and loneliness and healing there requires being in community, right? So another aspect that's, um, if, if we think historically in terms of what's unfolded for our species, right? From that context, we grew into a context of much larger groups where we needed sort of beliefs and like ideologies and sort of like things that sort of hold us together. Now, those are often held together in context of violence and in-group, out-group dynamics, but we still need some basic sense of like, what's our collective vision? Like what's our collective imaginary? What are our ideals and values that are holding us together? Maybe even beyond this small school group that's our healthy community, we also are connected to a network of other schools. We're connected to a globe of schools. We're connected to a globe of other people who are also trying to raise their children. What are the values and ideals that really hold us together that give our life meaning and purpose and value? We might need to update those. They might not be the same as what emerged thousands of years ago, but we still have that essential need, right? So we need meaningful community. We need values and ideals that kind of hold us together with other communities. And we don't want to lose, like you mentioned, those modernist values and qualities. So when we think of the enlightenment and what emerged um, over the past 500 years, I think of like the monastic tradition and the university tradition and scholarship and real deep inquiry and learning and specialization. Like we still need specialization. We, not everyone can just be a generalist who doesn't know how to build something or engineer something or, or innovate technologically and mathematically. So we still need like rigorous deep dive inquiry into specialization where people are allowed to actually be, again, be seen as individuals, follow their passions and allow their passions to take them down that road of like deep learning. So we don't wanna lose that, right? We don't wanna lose that deep academic learning in the name of everyone being like a happy liberal general, uh, generalist. You know, that, that's, not, that's not it, right? That's more that next phase of like the postmodern and what's coming in there is like, okay, all these things have to be integrated. There has to be some healthy balance of unity and diversity. There has to be some sense of equity. Whereas though even if, whether, if, you're a math, if you're a mathematician and you're an artist and you're a generalist philosopher, like how is there actually social and economic equity among these different people and, and not have things be so unbalanced in terms of remuneration versus like what you happen to be doing with your life, right? So I feel like, the next stage, I think, is finding new forms of equity and integration, 
where we're actually bringing these things together and we're creating social structures where there's not actually an incentivization to pursue a particular path because it's incentivized and you're going to make say money. But actually if, if we sort of take that, if, if, if we take those incentivizations away, then people will actually be more free to follow their passion and their purpose. And they'll be more likely also to self-actualize. So I see it as what's needed is an integration and also um, a form of creating equity and looking at how we're incentivizing dis- different capacities. And that, can, that, that has to be built in at the political level, but it can also be practiced and embodied at the family and school level, right? Like we need to transmit to our children that we actually are genuinely open for them to be whoever they are, right? We're not giving them subtle messages that actually they should be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker, you know, which is what a lot of the messages that a lot of kids are actually getting. Yeah, those messages can be uh, suppressive, but in certain cultural contexts, they serve a real value if we in fact need a lot of doctors or lawyers or soldiers or sacrificial explorers or something like that. But right now, we're not exactly sure what we're going to need. So we can't, we can't lay that on from the top as much as we were doing before if we expect good results. Yeah. Um, and what you were saying, to me, there's an interesting tension between complexity and simplicity, right? In the sense of the complexity of the world and the complexity of the organic, adaptive, educational process in people and societies, but also in concretizing and embedding that within actual lives, within social communities and within specific practices. Because no matter how big a scope we have on the complexity of the world, there's only so much time in each day and you can only do so many engagements with a child or somebody learning at any age. So how do you think about, you know, transforming the need for solutions and skills to reflect the richness and complexity of reality with the need for them to be embedded in very simple, humanly accessible practices so that they can be learned? Yeah, that, that is an interesting tension. And I really feel that one because I'm, I'm, I'm interestingly situated in that I'm, I'm, I'm living and working in various different contexts simultaneously, right? So actually, I work with young children, like directly, like I spend, I spend a lot of time with three, four, five-year-old children. Um, and there's a, there's a simplicity of that engagement, where obviously, I'm not, you know, I'm not unfolding the nuances of my thinking that I'm sharing in my book with young children, or frankly, with, with the educators that I'm working with. There's just, there's very different contexts for different kinds of conversations and different kinds of complexity. Um, so it's everything's context specific, right? But the beautiful thing I think about, um, you know, even, even in a context like policymaking, say I'm at a table with some powerful decision makers, you know, the more that we can keep the simple and the embodied in mind as we're creating this sort of conceptual policy architecture like that's so key, that's so crucial. We wanna keep the embodied reality of people in mind. And, we, and, and there, there is this sort of second simplicity where the basic principles are very simple. And I actually, I say this to parents a lot. And one thing that I think is really true is that simpler is often better. And we often in education, it's often, oh, there's this program and there's this program and there's just this endless stream of content and possibilities in terms of what we can teach and we can definitely drive ourselves crazy thinking too much about what to do and not being grounded in the simplicity of embodiment of relationship. So I feel like 
there are very sophisticated, mature, complex ways of explaining why relationship is important. And, you know, like there's, there's various streams we can unpack in terms of the development of humanity, in terms of the pathologies of society and sort of why healing and like collective trauma and like what's required for healing. Like there's many different frames we can use to explain, but what it comes down to is that embodied simplicity of just being present with people. And that really is what it's all about. If you are present and available and like, act, like actually present, like just fully present for people who you are in relationship to, everything else will get figured out. I honestly, I honestly think that because I, I experience, you know, the lack of that basically. And I, I see that it's, it's people's inability to just sit with the questions to be problem seeking, like to actually think about what the problems are and think together for solutions. We're not actually cultivating people's ability to do that. And having a more processed oriented view is a big part of the answer. So another reason why things get too complicated and complex is because there's all these proposed solutions, right? But if we focus more on basic principles of process that can be applied in different contexts, then we don't need to be thinking ahead of time about solutions. We don't need to know solutions ahead of time. We actually need to be focused on process and attention to process leads to better outcomes, whereas attention to outcomes tends to disrupt process, right? And lead to worse outcomes. So it really is simple. Like it really is about, you know, and then, and then we can, but then another tangent of that is like, well, then how do we cultivate presence, right? So then that's, and then do we have to layer that in, in terms of our curriculum, and then how much do we want to formalize things like meditation, you know, and I, I think there's some real tensions there too. And like, we don't want to turn meditation and the, the capacity to be present and embodied into just another curricular program that kind of loses its, its relevance for people. But we do need to find ways to actually organically cultivate presence and mindfulness in people so that they can think through these problems for themselves, you know. I love this notion of being problem seeking. And it seems like we know from psychology and brain studies now that a lot of ongoing growth and learning comes from leaning into uncomfortable things, uh, working on skills you're not good at yet, you know, risking the sense of being disturbed and feeling inadequate. I think one of the things that was really insufficient in my own education was I often got rewarded for things that were simply part of my inborn skill set that I didn't have to work on that hard. And it's really upsetting in hindsight for me to think about how little I was challenged and how often other people who didn't have my particular cognitive skills got uh, sort of spurned by teachers and educational systems just for having a different temperamental system. Yeah. Yeah, that's so key. And actually, it brings to mind for me, like, you know, I use a few different developmental models in the book, but one of the simplest is just Keegan's model of like socialized mind, self-authoring, and then self-transforming. And one of the descriptors that he uses is, um, you know, the, the socialized mind is really just going along with other people's thinking and just kind of following the crowd. Self-authoring is, is really problem solving. Like you're gonna, you're gonna figure out, you're gonna be oriented toward figuring out a way to solve problems. And one way of describing the self-transforming mind is actually problem finding. Like you're actually looking to complexify things and, and, and sort of look for the nuances and challenges of things so that you can solve problems that maybe weren't even named or identified before. And that's an example too of how 
there are capacities that open up at certain levels of maturity and development, but the basic principles can be taught and spread and shared across levels and stages and structures, right? Like just that as an idea, like to be problem seeking. You, you don't have to necessarily be, you know, a, 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 a self-actualizing, self-transforming person to be able to actually practice that, right? That can be something that is imported in and then children can be taught that. Children can be taught as you're doing something, oh, well, what problem haven't we thought of yet? Like, let's actually try to think of what would be some problems with this proposed solution, right? Like that, that is a skill that can be embedded at any level. Same with something like both and thinking, right? Like naturally you could see there's this tendency toward either or thinking, and then a more mature view is to hold things more in a both and context where you can see both sides of things. Now that is a developmental capacity, but it's still also a value that can be communicated across levels. So it's not like only people who are super mature and self-actualized and self-transforming will understand that on a conceptual level, right? Like I can talk to my 10 year old daughter about both and thinking and what that means and trying to cultivate those capacities. So there's lots of examples like that where you look for a skill that kind of unfolds through the developmental process. And then if you can name it, you can share it as a value or as a skill to have other people practice that will then help them get to the place where they would generate that kind of thinking or capacity naturally. I've got a question around time scales and I haven't clearly formulated it. So let me just tell you the two things that are in my mind that are connected to this question. One is uh, what we see with our kids here, which is when you help them with a skill or a piece of knowledge, it's uncertain how long it will take for that to become a part of them or whether it will or not. So you might work with them for a while on something and it never seems like it goes in. So you could not at that point apply a metric and say, this is working. But when their mind undergoes its next revolution, they sort of become the next iteration of the kid that they are. Suddenly some of those things you were teaching or showing them show up. And now they know how to do this and like this. And they almost don't remember the earlier phase. They just think they've always been like that. But yeah. it seems like we don't know exactly when to check to see if something has been installed. And then the other thing, the other side, I was thinking about how, how much I personally would have liked to have spent more time at the simplest levels of the knowledge systems. You know, when I look at higher mathematics, I think, wow, if I'd only gotten to spend a couple more years on simple Pythagorean and Euclidean things. If I'd only gotten to do it for a couple of years with circles in the dirt and stones, like they were doing, the inventors of mathematics before we had paper or calculators, then man, how rich would my undergirding of advanced mathematics be? But do we have time? Do we have time for me as a kid to spend five years working with stones in Greek math before I really feel like I'm ready for algebra or something like that? So yeah. those are both time scale problems. And you know, what's your feeling response to all that? Yeah, a lot. Actually, I'll see if there's several different threads to follow there. I'll see if I can remember some of them. I mean, there's something essential there just about, again, honoring individuals and their process. And like for each individual, you're talking about any child, like honoring their process and their timing and not trying to push them And a big, a big pathology of our system. Again, standardization, not just of behavior, or standardization of content, but the standardization of timing 
is is the biggest problem of it. Actually, like it's it's completely normalized and completely insane to think that you know at a specific you know age, five and a half years old, every child should be reading at a certain level and anyone beneath that is below grade level and anyone above that is above grade that's insane like children are not supposed to all learn to read at the exact same time and standardizing the timing of the unfolding it's a serious problem because i think children feel that so deeply like every child who's not yet reading when the state has said they should be on some level is getting a message that they're either stupid or dumb or not smart or not a good reader. That's affecting their self-concept. It's, effect, it's affecting how they think about themselves. It's affecting their whole future trajectory as a learner. And it's a completely unnecessary and unhelpful message for them to get because it's false. So there's, there's stuff like that that really needs to be shifted. And having a broader appreciation for the unique unfolding of children is a key point. Another, too, is just how we are teaching that on so many different levels, like, like, I, like, like the seeds that we're planting. If we can honor the process, and if we know that we are in touch with the basic principles of teaching and learning and human development, we can trust the process more, the better we understand it. And then we don't have to be anxious about the short-term outcomes, right? And we can trust that when we're planting those seeds, there is at least the chance that they will come to fruition later if the conditions are right for that, for that individual. But I think having a deeper trust in process and knowing that through right relationship, like we're doing what we need to do. And then to some degree, having the maturity to not micromanage outcomes and to let kids be who they are, to let people be who they are. If you have 10 different children in a classroom or a family or whatever, and you as an educator or a parent are planting similar seeds for all of them, they're all going to flower differently, not only at different timings, but some will just take it totally in the direction maybe that you conceived and others just won't because they're, they're different. So just like having the maturity to accept that. And then the th another thing that came to mind too is just, and then that is not always explicit. Like even the seeds that we're planting don't have to be explicit. It's not like your, your point about math, I think is important. So part of the maturity of understanding and respecting the educational process, part of the maturity of understanding and respecting individuality is actually slowing down and having more time for the basics. And I think you're actually right on, we should be giving more time for the basics and the fundamentals and making sure that there's really deep understanding and not again, because of the timing of standardized uh, pressure, we kind of move kids along and we push them through because we just want them to get farther and farther, thinking farther is better. And it's, it's absolutely not the case. But also, so explicit things like that, like slowing down explicitly how we teach mathematics is one thing, but also realizing that the seeds that we're planting are largely nonverbal, right? Most of our communication is not explicit, it's implicit. And we're teaching children how to be humans in the world. So the degree to which we actually are mature and are able to slow down ourselves and are able to actually have a healthy relationship to life ourselves as adults, we're modeling so much like we we are transmitting how to be a being in the world to our children and if our teachers are not healthy if our parents are not healthy if we're not feeling stable and grounded and able to slow down ourselves then we're going to be planting the seeds of like hyperactivity and attention disorder 
and like stress and anxiety, even if we're not trying to, even if we're, we could be explicitly trying to slow down the teaching of math and still be implicitly teaching how to be stressed out and anxious and like with, with like short attention span and like on your phone all the time. So we, you know, we've got to realize that most education happens through osmosis, frankly. Like we are transmitting a lot of information and our children are taking in a lot of information through all of their senses and those that we don't even understand or have names for. And to really honor and respect that is a big part of the puzzle. That makes me curious about the osmosis learning potential of access to complex knowledge that's beyond a child's skill level. Because on the one hand, I know we're not spending enough time on the basics to really emotionally and psychologically and humanly anchor interest in developing higher knowledge. So that when most people go to higher grades, they end up feeling nothing about (laughs) the topics they're studying. But on the other hand, there's this sense that we really um, almost commercially target children and go, this is for three to fives. And then you have to buy the one for the five to sevens because you don't ever want them to encounter something that's too advanced for their little slice. Yeah. But at the same time, what I heard in school was that under Charlemagne, (laughs) uh, reading was taught to the children of the nobles again, but really all they had were the Bible and the Greek myths, which are very rich topics. They aren't um, Dick and Jane went to the park. So those children were being taught to read something where the understanding was they're not really going to understand it. They're just going to be exposed to complex material and maybe get little bits of it. You know, and I have friends who say to me, you know, what should I read to my kids? And I main thing I say is read something you actually like. So it's worthwhile time. And they pick that up. But, you know, my aunt friend says what he wants to read is Dune to his kids, you know, and she's five. And I'm like, that's, that's okay. It's okay for her to not follow everything in what you're saying. Yeah. Because I think there is this osmosis dimension, both with people, but also with zones of information. It can be really rich because when they go outside, nature is extremely rich and they're built to adapt to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's also, that's a really rich question. There's a few different ways I want to approach it actually, because they're, there's a tension between the sort of unhealthy ways in which some children are being pushed too much for the wrong reasons. And then a potentially healthy response to that and wanting to slow down, like you said. So actually like one way to look at this is through play, like play is really important and essential and young children, especially, you know, thinking, all the way up through elementary age, they should have free time for unstructured play. Like children need to be in the world of imagination and make-believe. They need to have autonomy and control over some of their relationships and their actions. They don't need to be hyper-structured. Um, so they need sort of freedom, right? So that, that that's one tension. And I think there's a healthy move toward more freedom and less structure and less confinement. But that can also be conflated with the structure and confinement being associated with academics and really doing rigorous, difficult work. And then the tendency to move more toward free play and autonomy and maybe unschooling that can kind of bleed into, uh, Oh, well, you know, more hands-off approach, laissez-faire teaching and parenting, where maybe they're actually not getting exposed to rich mathematics or rich literature or rich ideas. So we want to hold 
both of those. And so we want to, I feel like more play, more free time, more unstructured time, more freedom, and still, like you're saying, more exposure to rich, complex thought. And one interesting way to track this is actually looking at children's literature over time. I was really shocked to see as a parent, the older texts, like um, even like even like the Secret Garden or the or the um, is it the Little Princess, like, you know, or like Swiss Family Robinson or even like Heidi or like just like older texts for children. The, the, the language is much more sophisticated or, or actually if, 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 if you even read. Um, oh, I'm blanking on it, but even like the like like texts like The Wizard of Oz or like old famous stories, but the actual the language or, or like um, Kipling, you know, like those stories or uh, uh, The Jungle Book. Like older, the language is so much richer and more sophisticated and children used to actually read at much higher levels in the past. And there's a ways in which we've actually dumbed down children's literature. Um, and it's sad. It's actually really sad. And it kind of is taking advantage of this insight of like honoring childhood and honoring the world of, of the child and honoring that playful, free spirited world, which is really important. I don't want to lose that. Um, but there's a way in which we have brought down the level of complexity. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think exposure to more sophisticated language is actually the key. And that's actually, this is actually a real key. And it's, it plays out in different kinds of research. Like when we look at inequities between different um, classes and we look at different outcomes in terms of education, if you trace it back to the language that's used in the home, this is actually a key and consistent finding that just the sophistication of the words that we use with our children is a pretty huge predictor of, of how good of a student they'll be and of their capacity for thinking and writing in the future. So even, and that's even more important than, than some ways in terms of books and explicit learning is just language. Like we are embodied linguistic creatures who come from a rich oral tradition of our ancestors and the way that we talk and language the world into being with our children is really important. So not talking down to our children and not, not having um, overly, you know, like thinking that we're talking on their level and oversimplifying things. And even like using like childish versions of words for things is something I see a lot of parents doing. And I think that's, that's a mistake. I think we actually want to, and again, this sort of presupposes, I mean, what's, what's the complexity of the language of the adults that we've been talking about. Right. So it's a, it's a feedback loop problem of up-leveling the maturity and complexity of language games that adults are playing will help bring children up to those more complex language games faster. Um, so yeah, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. But somehow it has to coexist with this honoring of like free play and also like the beautiful imaginal world of the child that we also don't want to push them out of too soon. There's an interesting ambiguity there around uh, screens and devices, because on the one hand, we know some things about, especially at early ages, the, you know, the kind of abuse to the brain system that can be done by overuse of screens, and also as access portals to algorithms trying to manipulate you and uh, political concepts trying to replace your education with culture war and things like that. So we need to be very cautious about those things. But if you're in a household, where language use is not rich and fluid and sophisticated, then it may be that um, pop culture and screens and videos are a real way for you to hear a lot of people saying richer things than you're going to hear around the household or around the block. 
Maybe, maybe. I mean, I feel like honestly, if you're if you are a child and you are in a situation where your parents, for whatever reason, are not, you know, super conscious, embodied, mindful, articulate people, um, I mean, there's no way around the fact that you're going to be at a disadvantage. That that's just there is a relationship between the maturity and complexity of parents and then the educational environment of of children. Um, I'd say as schools, that's part of what we want to help be responsible for is in the name of equity, making sure that all children have access to a rich, mature, thoughtful environment where they are exposed to complex thought and language, regardless of, of what their home life happens to be. So that, that is part of the um, responsibility of schools. In terms of what they're getting from you know, popular media, I, I, frankly, I'm pretty skeptical on that. I mean, I would think the direction to go there would be, again, a rich, uh, healthy educational environment that also is in relationship with the parents, trying to up-level both the child and the parent simultaneously. I mean, that's the ideal. Anyway, for anyone engaged in education, you're trying to actually help both the parent and the child to be on that, on that um, upward spiraling sort of path. In ter- I mean, in terms of what kids are getting through, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and whatever else they're doing, mostly YouTube is, and TikTok is my impression right now. Frankly, I'm pretty critical of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, there is this notion of like everything bad is good for you. I think as Steven Johnson said, and that there are, there are kinds of social cultural complexity that are being transmitted through popular culture that are qualitatively different than what existed in prior times. And there is a way in which young people can and will and should and have to kind of tune into that um, because they are of this 21st century world in all its complexity and chaos. But as a parent, I actually do my best to, to protect my daughter from, from, from exposure to popular media because I feel like it's already, it it is in the air. Like she is getting the transmission, whether I want her to or not. And my job is really just to make sure it's not an overexposure because my sense is that the complexity and thoughtfulness of what's out there on, on, that she's going to be exposed to through her peers um, is of a much lower order of health and complexity than what my wife and I are trying to expose her to and what we're trying to cultivate at our school. So I, I, I honestly, for me, it's like, I just want to give as much caution as possible to, to parents and teachers to not overexpose children. Another, I'll just quick, another trend I see is overexposure to mature content. I see a lot. I've worked with a lot of young kids in different states and I see a lot of, for some reason, parents are really eager to, you know, to, to go through all the star Wars and all the Harry Potter and all the stuff, like when they're like four or five years old. And uh, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like, the, you know, it, it, the, so there is, there's a slowing down. I feel like up level the language, but slow down the exposure to, to media would, would be my hope. Yeah, that's nice. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between knowledge and understanding. Uh, I, lately, I've heard Elon Musk talking up a big game about manufacturing, about how manufacturing is superior to having a good idea. It's much harder and has much more real effect in the world. And what I hear him saying is the the concept isn't enough. We've overvalued 
conceptual information in a kind of superficial way that's cut us off from embodiment and manifestation. And the problems we have to solve in the world are at the level of changing the world that we live in, not just having better ideas that we agree with. And a lot of that relates to the school system, because we seem to be in a pattern where a lot of people acquire a, an intellectual knowledge set that they're asked to memorize, practice, regurgitate, at least temporarily. But there's not a lot of attention paid to and perhaps not a lot of understanding of how you would really feel that, how you would really embody that, how you turn knowledge into understanding that's a part of you that's actionable in your life rather than just some things you heard for a while. Mm. yeah no that's another rich rich topic and i think elon has a point but my first reaction was you know um the sort of uh zuckerberg anti-wisdom of move fast and break things right and that's that's not a good philosophy that's going to lead to good manifestations i don't think so there needs to be some you know, I, the importance of creation and actualization and concrete reality and applicability and relevance, like all of that is in maybe what Elon's saying, but still ideally there's some, there's some wisdom, there's some insight, there is some coherent around the intentionality of that creation, right? Because there's, there's always going to be, um, all manifestation is going to be some sort of subjectivity or awareness or consciousness that's actually in relationship with that manifestation. So it's not, it's not an either or obviously, I mean, the, the intention and the wisdom of the creators is crucial and of the utmost importance. And in terms of uh, what was the second thread? The last thing you just said was super interesting too. I got lost in the Elon. Yeah. It was more about how you turn knowledge into. Oh yeah. 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 Body, so, right? so so what comes to mind? So different kinds of knowledge, right? And, and actually, um, to borrow from John Verveke here, I think it's a really crucial point to point out the difference between propositional knowledge, procedural knowledge, participatory knowledge, and perspectival knowledge, right? And, and in particular, the way that we have um, reduced the complexity of learning is by reducing it to some sense of propositional knowledge and thinking of knowledge as propositional knowledge, meaning just some set of facts like information, the sort of input, um, uh, what, what Frere called the uh, banking model of education, where you're just depositing into the brain banks of students, right? And so that, that's been kind of the de facto default sort of uh, philosophy of what education is, it's learning content. Um, but that's just one kind of knowledge and it is very limited. So I think what we want to actually acknowledge more and make more explicit and aim toward developing more is participatory knowledge and procedural knowledge, right? So procedural knowledge is learning how to do things like the procedure of learning how to make something is procedural knowledge. And that is a crucial part of the educational process and not just in sort of a vocational training, but in everything like to the act of creating art or engineering or anything that, that is either individual or collective, making things, procedural knowledge is crucial. And that's a little bit speaking to what Elon's talking about. Also participatory knowledge, right? Like how to be in a relationship with each other, how to collaborate, how to problem find and problem answer and like just be in community and conversation and, and, and dialogues, right? So there's so much depth and richness to what we can learn and what we can know, whether it's learning, knowing or understanding you know, the word doesn't matter so much as what 
it is we're really talking about. So I think those distinctions are very meaningful ones. And then when we're thinking of development, we're thinking more of perspectival knowing, like how do you actually know things from different vantage points? And to me, that speaks to fostering the overall development, which can't be done just by inputting more information. So the critique of propositional knowledge is actually really, really crucial. I, I totally agree with it, but not to be replaced by unthinking doing and just making stupid stuff for people to buy. Like that's not the answer, right? The answer is different kinds of knowing, deeper knowing, right? And, and actually bringing these things all together so that anything that we create and make is actually informed by these different kinds of knowing. Yeah, they all need to uh, cross-pollinate each other because a piece of propositional information has a very significant difference if it's just a piece of propositional information or if it's a proposition that's uh, underwritten by procedural, participatory, and perspectival understanding. Yeah. yeah. Right. And even when, you know, the time that I've spent in communities of people looking at developmental models there's a really exaggerated emphasis on identifying people at levels due to the content that they affirm or express. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that's coming up in educational systems that overemphasize propositional content so that when you hear someone saying something that sounds postmodern or sounds traditional or sounds archaic, you think you know what slot to put them in, but you haven't really explored the actual richness and complexity or not of how they're saying it, what they've experienced, what they take that proposition to mean, all those mm -hmm. sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a real role for the educational system to authenticate propositions that we already have. Because mm -hmm. if people are coming up and they don't know the meaning of the things they think they mean, then we have a huge uninspected problem. Right. If we have this is one of my critiques of current, let's say, modern education is that a lot of it isn't done in modern ways. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to see how people would start to sympathize with creationism and flat earth models, which are sort of from a pre-modern form of cultural education. If the modern education they're getting is basically no better than an ethnic belief system. You're just told to accept what we already came up with. And there's a consensus of experts about this. The world is round and you just accept it. But later you think, you know what? I just accepted that. It's in fact, no better than a religious proposition. I might as well regress back to a level of worldview that at least makes visceral sense to me. Yeah. And that's actually one way of describing one of the potential problems with a lot of progressive liberal more, you know, so-called postmodern educational environments is actually, you know, transmitting to children the values and beliefs and ideas of, you know, in, in, uh, environmental awareness, you know, anti-racism intentions, you know, but, but transmitting them to children as, as facts, as truth, as this, this is what is right, and this is what we need to believe, and these are the things that we believe and you know the opposite is is bad, um, and, and so there's a sort of polarization that's possible. And when we don't actually orient continually to process, again, this is why pro like focusing on processes is important. Focusing on the quality of relationships and dialogue and inquiry and problem finding, like these are the things. These meta skills 
are the things that we need to be focused on when we think about education, not on particular content so much. Because when it comes to math and maybe, you know, science and history, especially math and science, some content is maybe more straightforward. And yes, we want to transmit a lot of content. Yes, we want children's minds to be filled with factual information. That is crucial and essential. But the process and the how really matters and getting them to think critically about things really, really matters. Because otherwise, yeah, we can think we're actually giving them um, higher order thinking. We, we, we can easily confuse the sort of kinds of language and beliefs that say like postmodern systematic thinking tends to use. And if we have young people just use that same language, we can trick ourselves into thinking that they're enacting systematic thinking and they're not, right? So there's a, there's a definite distinction between the sort of cultural code that we use with kids and the actual complexity of the thinking that's transmitting that code. Yeah, well said. With the kids that are here, you know, one of the things I'm often doing is asking myself what I can do to supplement their education, whether it's after school or take them out of school some days and summers and things like that. And, you know, what I end up doing falls into a couple of broad categories. I end up trying to do what I think of as integrated topics, like conversations or exercises that would cover a number of different subjects in normal schooling in an integrated way. I try to expose them to my curiosity about them and my attempt to just nuance or add openings to what they're thinking about. And obviously the general background of who I am, which I think comes across if I can get into a good relational rapport with them. But another thing I will focus on with them is um, forming relationships to adults and educators. Like I know there's a, a certain uh, pattern of kids who can relate to their teachers better tend to do better over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of that is conversation. A lot of that is being able to emphasize, emphasize with them as a human being. Uh, and some of that is just being prompted to think about who you like and who you don't like among your teachers. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, uh, who is your favorite teacher and why? Mm. Good question. You know, I'd say one teacher that, that sticks out to me was a college professor I had who was a professor of Greek philosophy. And he, you know, he, he taught Plato mostly. So it's really just focusing on Plato. And I have an appreciation for Plato. I mean, reading Plato's dialogues is, 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 a, is a meaningful and aesthetically pleasing thing to do. But it, but that, it was really regardless of the content, it was his passion. Like this guy lived and breathed platonic philosophy and he would get super excited about it and it just the gregariousness and the charisma that he brought to the class really transmitted something where it really felt like he was on this quest to figure it out and he would go into all the contradictions and the paradoxes and it was like every semester of every year he was reworking like with this material and like really seeking to understand it and trying to convey to these like pretty much mostly like cynical tuned out um, undergraduates, like, you know, the, the weightiness of this and the significance of this and the puzzle of this material. And that kind of transmission, I think is too few and far between, honestly. I mean, for me, I, I've had to be mostly autodidactic in my studies and do a lot of independent reading and have connected with close friends who share very similar sort of inquiry um, and had very meaningful relationships outside of formal education. 
Um, and I'd say most of my learning and deep connection has been outside of formal education, actually, which is saying something in itself. But actually, I haven't had that many teachers or professors who really were on fire with the material and really transmitted a, 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 a kind of passion. And I think that's actually sad. And I think it's actually partly because of some of the bureaucratic, institutional, cultural, social uh, influences that are actually not healthy and not supporting the enlivening of the autonomy and individuality of teachers. You know, like we actually need to find a way to empower people in general, empower parents, empower teachers to find out what they're passionate about and really try to transmit that to the younger generation. And that, that was even coming up when you were talking about, you know, trying to supplement too. It's sort of like, and you meant like find the things that you're interested in, like anything you're genuinely interested in, that's the best thing to teach about. And maybe your kids or your students, maybe or maybe not, they're interested in the same thing, but at least that what they're learning is how to be excited, how to be passionate, how to be engaged, how to be a lifelong learner. And those are the meta skills that we most want to teach, again, more than the content. So you're actually teaching how to be passionate about something, how to learn about something. And then they can either apply that to that same field or they can maybe apply that to a different field. So it's sort of this, you know, following their interests, but also transmitting your interests. And again, it's like, it's so simple. Like you don't need a curriculum. You don't need a way of teaching. It really is about tuning into these simple basics and like being, being in relationship around them. You really came alive in that answer. I like that. Maybe it's a good place to end. I want to thank you for being here. And I think that, you know, education is sort of absolutely the spine of every attempt to analyze what's going on in our culture. How do we face the meta crisis? Like if we don't solve the problem of a deeper, more ongoing, more natural and more powerful evolution of individual understanding at every age, then we really don't have a hope of collectively solving our problems. So uh, the work you're doing and the insight and the passion that you bring to it and this book that you've got, I think are tremendous and people should check them out. Thank you, Layman. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it is, it is important and we're all engaged in education one way or the other. So it's, it's, uh, it's worth thinking about a little bit. Mm -hmm.